The folks at Penwood's Equine are excited for you to hear about their new foot quality product, Essential Rescue. When you've exhausted all other biotin or foot quality products, this will be your go-to because it gets results in an incredibly short amount of time. Maybe you have multiple horses and everything you're doing seems to be working for them, except that one horse. No matter what you try, nothing seems to help that horse. We've all been there. Well, Essential Rescue is a product that you can add to whatever you're already feeding to achieve great hoof quality results. Through our own research and reports from our customers with their own horses, Essential Rescue can help deliver significant improvements in just one shoeing cycle. And for a limited time, Penwoods is offering free shipping on Essential Rescue when you buy from Penwoods.com. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. Over the past four decades, Dr. Christopher Pollitt has dedicated himself to laminitis research. He's helped advance our understanding of this dreaded disease and how best to treat it. And this impact isn't only seen through his own work, but that of his students and colleagues. In this episode, we'll talk to him about his prolific career. He'll touch on some of the milestones he's seen in our understanding of laminitis, the big question that laminitis researchers should be answering, and also talk about the Brumby, Australia's feral horse. Well, as a kid, I was always interested in horses, but was in a family that could never own one. But every opportunity I had, I uh, would ride, I would dream of playing cowboys and Indians on horseback. And uh, whenever possible, visiting farming friends, I would ride with them, muster their cattle with them, ride, etc. I played horse sports um, before I became a laminitis researcher. I played polo. I played a sport in Australia called camp drafting, a little bit like cutting. And it involves cutting, but uh, a bit more extensive in rounding up cattle. Um, Things like that, trail riding, I became a very enthusiastic endurance, long distance horse rider with my family in my uh, 50s and 60s. And uh, at veterinary school, I graduated um, with no particular driving ambition to become a horse veterinarian. My first practices were general practice, but always keen to be involved with the horse. It wasn't until I joined the University of Queensland as I, with a PhD and uh, became the lecturer in equine medicine at the School of Veterinary Science, University of Queensland, Australia, that I was commissioned to start a research project that was part of my work profile, along with lecturing, along with some administration, which I avoided like the plague. <laughs> but... Um, Certainly started with research. I started in, with some parasitology project because this was in the days before ivermectin cured everything. But it wasn't until a horse was presented to me, a horse called Twinkle, that had been condemned by a colleague, another practicing veterinarian, to be euthanized because of uh, pretty painful feet. And it was with that horse that I first became interested in corrective shoeing, therapeutic shoeing, I should say, and learned about the heart by shoe. And uh, in collaboration with a farrier, this is why I've always been enthusiastic about vet farrier relations, working with a uh, senior farrier in my district, Keith Swan, we developed programs for uh, therapeutic shoeing for founder horses and got many, many clients and many recommendations from colleagues to work in that area. So with that practical side of my uh, university clinical practice, I became interested in the root cause of laminitis. I think it's helpful to give this context about the horse culture, even though Australia is a massive country. A lot of our listeners aren't familiar with it, and I definitely want to get into that more, especially your work with the Brumbies. But let's talk a little bit about working with farriers like Keith Swan. What has changed with your approach for working with a chronic laminitic horse with a farrier like Keith? 
Well, it hasn't really changed very much, but Keith and I were asking questions about the existing therapeutic approaches to chronic laminitis. We, we were never in those days treating really acute cases or even thinking about trying to prevent laminitis as it, as it was occurring in the field or in, in the hospital. We were trying to cope with the devastating after effects, the, the so-called chronic laminitis, the sinking of the distal phalanx, the distortions to the growth patterns of the hoof and the, the damage to the sole and eventually the destruction of the coffin bone, the distal phalanx. So Keith and I asked questions and we wanted to find out more. We were thirsty for knowledge. We travelled to the United States. One of the first things we did was to find out more about the heart marshur. And we travelled to the United States, specifically to Lubbock, Texas. And Jeremy, you know where this is leading. It's leading to the doorstep of Bernie Chapman and George Platt. Bernie and George had, uh, Dr. George Platt had presented at, the, at an AEP conference, the first vet farrier team to our knowledge that uh, ever did that. And they presented their work with the Heart by Shoe. And that attracted my attention, that publication in the proceedings of the AEP for that year. And uh, I wrote a letter, there was no email then, to Bernie. I received a reply with a beautiful United States stamp on it and very quickly organised for Keith and I to visit. And it was a revelation. He was a man who, whose entire practice was based on founded horses, along with George. They were working together in those days. And in our two weeks stay with Bernie, we saw his approach, to particularly dorsal hoof oral resection. We sat around endless hours looking over the anatomy of the foot, the way the shoe might have worked. He had some anatomical specimens, old dried specimens of hooves and bones, and we figured it out. And I, Keith and I brought that technology, how to make the heart by shoe. So Keith was uh, forging those shoes and uh, welding the frog plate into a forged steel shoe. Together, we were applying these shoes. We pretty soon worked out basic principles of shoeing founded horses as it is today. It was based on bringing the brake over back using the palmar posterior caudal part of the foot to support the rest. Doing either dorsal hoof wall resections, so we learned about the Dremel tool from Bernie and purchased those when we got back to Australia removing at least the coronary band, doing a coronary band groove and opening the toe were basic principles. And we improved the outcome for many horses, not every horse by any means, but certainly many horses. So it was a step forward. We presented that at conferences. We started early vet farrier conferences. Some senior veterinarians were very reluctant to join, but eventually the, the younger ones and the more forward-thinking veterinarians and farriers joined with us in these conferences, and we shared our results. What was the state of laminitis research then, you know, and maybe in, in comparison today? Well, uh, worldwide, maybe. I guess uh, it was in its infancy, but it's very interesting now, Jeremy, looking back over my 30-odd years in laminitis research. Laminitis research started... And this is why conferences and meetings where you bring like minds together and you sit them around tables to discuss formally or you put them in the coffee line and get them talking to each other. I plucked up the courage to ask a very tall American guest speaker at one of our Australian horse conferences, veterinary equine conferences, a man called James Kaufman. And he had just presented to us the very latest on laminitis research. And this was presenting David Hood's research. And this was the first time that we heard about arterial venous shunting and the possibility that that could be involved in starving the laminae and lamellae from, their, from delivery of their essential requirements so that they died in effect and let the distal phalanx sink into the uh, solar corium. 
So he talked about these shunts and he talked about David Hood's results, how shunting using uh, at the time the latest scintigraphy data from Texas A&M University was certainly showed that shunting was occurring. Now, please bring me back to that point because there's a critical time point involved in those results. And, uh, and, and it's something else that David Hood said, because I went on to meet David Hood in the, in, in the future. Um, but at that time, I bravely tapped Dr. Kaufman on the shoulder. And this is a man that's taller than me. There aren't too many people that I have to look up to. But I did have to look up to Dr. Kaufman. And you know that I have to look up to Andrew Van Epps. He's two or three inches taller than me as well. So I asked Dr. Kaufman, what do you know about these arteriovenous shunts? Do they actually exist anatomically? Do you have histo histology, anatomical evidence of where they are in the horse's foot? And he said, well, no, we don't have empirical evidence of their existence. We just know from Hood's data that some shunting occurred at some level in the horse's foot. So from that conference, I went back to my university and I started a research program looking for those uh, shunts. As, you know, the record shows, in fact, I think it was published in uh, the American Farrier's Journal way, way back, uh, Jeremy. It was a yes. beautiful, beautiful colour pictures of my uh, work in one of those historical journals. And serendipity has... Uh, helped me. It's almost like there's been an equine angel on my shoulder pointing me in different directions over the years. And uh, I've had some luck in just being able to find the right people to assist in answering key questions. The key question about the shunting was that our university had an international expert on arteriovenous shunts in, in a neighbouring department to the veterinary school in the Department of Anatomy. This is a man who had explored shunting all his life. He, he dedicated no other part of his research career except to the existence and analysis of what, the function of those arteriovenous shunts. So they occur in seals' flippers for them to be able to thermoregulate when they're out of the water. They occur in the pads of wolves who exist in the Arctic uh, environment. When birds like petrels paddle in sub-freezing water in the Arctic or Antarctic zones, of course, their feet have to be kept above them because the seawater is freezing all around them. But they have this system of shunting going on to keep warm blood. And I asked Professor Molyneux, his name was Jeff, Jeffrey Molyneux, do you think shunts, these arteriovenous shunts that you've so eloquently described in your career, do you think they could occur in horses' feet? And he said, well, bring me some histology. And I, I quickly brought him a histological section and he looked at it and uh, he just said, yeah, they're there. And I go, what? Where? And he showed me these little, small, fat blood vessels, just subtly different from the surrounding arteries and veins. And there they were. And we went on to do special staining. We did electron microscopy. I, did, I made vascular casts out of uh, very uh, dilute methyl methacrylate injections and uh, presented those scanning EMs, which really set the laminitis world on fire because suddenly we had a, an anatomical basis for what Dr. Hood appeared to have discovered. Now... That was the state of the art then in the early 90s, last century, 1989, 1991, 92, etc. So what I went on to discover was when Dr. Hood um, injected his particles to see whether shunting was occurred, injected them into the bloodstream in the normal animal, they lodged, got stuck in the small capillaries of the horse's foot. So with his scintigraphy, the feet of the control horses, horses without the laminitis, their feet lit up because they had, uh, they had filtered the particles out of the bloodstream. 
And then when he did the same to founded horses, they, their feet did not light up. In other words, the particles were not lodging in the small blood vessels of the horse's foot. But the timing was critical in that experiment. And it wasn't sort of really clear in the early publication, and Professor James Kaufman didn't really make it clear, because it had already occurred when he injected the, the radioactive uh, microparticles, the horse already had chronic laminitis. They were at the 24, 30, 30 hour stage. So the actual prelude, the actual cause of laminitis had preceded the shunting. So it was an effect rather than a cause. And I didn't realize that till later on. And shunting now, of course, has become very, very important in our understanding of the horse's foot, the physiology of the foot, and how it survives in its own environment, and how it has evolved over the, over the millennia, and how we can use those shunts in one of the greatest advances in laminitis research and laminitis therapy, and that is distal limb cooling, because it is the shunts that's maintaining the temperature of the horse's foot when the foot is in a very, very cold environment. You can put horses' feet in circulating, this is from living horses, of course, you can put their legs and feet into very, very cold water, but the foot never approaches the temperature of the uh, extremely cold environment. In other words, you can never freeze a living horse's foot. They will not get frostbite of their feet because the shunts keep the temperature of the deep tissues of the foot above a critical temperature. They keep the temperature at about three degrees uh, Celsius when the external water-cooled environment uh, could be close to zero. So that's what the shunts are doing now, and they're still vitally important in our understanding of uh, laminitis therapy, but uh, they uh, now have a very much different significance than what we initially thought. We thought they were involved in the cause, the prime devastating initial trigger that uh, causes the failure of the suspensory apparatus to the lamellae. But no, the shunting that does occur with laminitis occurs much later down the track and is an after effect of the destruction that's occurred in the uh, anatomy of the foot. Can we we back up and talk a little bit about the the emergence of cooling and and the understanding of that and how that originated? Cooling went hand in hand with the discovery of a reliable induction model, the uh, oligofructose induction model. But that's another cool story. No pun intended there, but (laughs) it is a cool story. It's a cool story about cooling. It was always curious to me how horses could withstand very, very cold environments without stamping their feet without seeming to be uncomfortable in climates and in an environment that would be lethal to human beings without their protective clothing. Horses were quite comfortable. And I go back now to a trip that my wife Sandra and I made to Alaska to visit a farrier called John Arkley, whom I met at a farrier's convention. He said I would be welcome if I ever visited. And uh, so I followed that up with some mail, some letters. And sure enough, we had a date to visit uh, John Arkley in the valley north of Anchorage. So we arrived and he picked us up and I explained to him what I wanted. It was winter, it was uh, December. I wanted to be able to insert into holes that we were going to drill into the horse's hooves, the dorsal hoof wall, we we're going to drill about um, a quarter of an inch in so that we were close to the deep tissues. And I had a very primitive laptop computer and I had a very primitive homemade data logger. This data logger was actually a weather station that had been made by our government uh, scientific research organisation for putting on remote islands and lighthouses. So all it recorded was the temperature through a specialised transistor whatever you set it to every five minutes, every hour. So these weather stations was a, were a published board that you could solder from components yourself. And my technician made me several of these, and this is what we brought to Alaska, these uh, 
primitive data loggers connected by wires to probes in the horse's foot. Now, we set this up and the horses were in pens. They were out on the ice. We set it up during the day. We had a cabin nearby with a heater in it and the outside temperature was uh, minus 25 Celsius. Uh, we were rugged up in those big uh, bubble boots that you can wear out there, sort of uh, huge uh, padded uh, coveralls and helmets and gloves and funny hats with fur lining. And when midnight came around, which was the time for the data logger time points to be downloaded, we went down to the horses, plugged in the data logger to my laptop computer, the monitor froze, Jeremy, it just went black because of the temperature. That seemed very disappointing for the moment, but we unplugged it, went back into the cabin and it warmed it up, and I kept the laptop then inside my uh, weather suit. And then we went back down to the horses and successfully downloaded the data. And their feet had gone from something like plus 24, 26 Celsius to down to two or three degrees Celsius. And I was pretty worried the next morning that uh, we hadn't done something terrible to these horses. They were John's, they were John Arkley's uh, cutting horses, his uh, roping horses, his quarter horses that uh, don't do anything during the winter except eat hay. John tapped uh, Sandra and me on the shoulders and he said, Chris, Sandra, look up into the sky. And here is one of the quintessential moments of my research career, sharing it with my wonderful wife, Sandy, at the same time. And Jeremy, what do you think was above us in the sky? The northern lights. Yes. They were flashing green and red. And here I was doing laminized research under the northern lights. Wow. <laughs> uh, it was a wonderful moment. And next morning, the feet had come back up to 24. And then with the next download, they'd fluctuated. So they were alternating left and right, separate from each other, alternating up to 24 degrees, warming in other words, and then cooling down when the warmth to the foot wasn't necessary. But above all, keeping them above a critical uh, damaging temperature because outside was freezing everything. We couldn't even give them a drink of water without um, seeing the water freeze in the buckets. I repeated that work in Norway a few years later and the same result delivered by the more sophisticated data loggers that we have by now. But that showed me that there was a mechanism in the horse's foot whereby they can tolerate, without feeling any discomfort, tolerate their legs and hooves and feet being in a very cold environment. So when I got back to Queensland, and by now Andrew Van Epps had joined me as a postgrad, we started to put horses, uh, one horse, one leg of a horse into a tall turbulator boot, as it was then, in cold water along with uh, ice cubes. So that were, the legs were in a slurry of ice cubes. And I expected the horses to sort of put up with that because they were handheld or tethered. And I uh, expected them to put up with it for 20 odd minutes until it became intolerably cold and they would get rid of the boot. But they never did, Jeremy. That was the surprising thing. They could stand for 24, 48 hours in that uh, ice-filled boot uh, without showing any signs of discomfort or that it was uncomfortable at all. And that was the, the first published research, uh, just showing that horses can tolerate it, that their anatomy can cope with it, they're physiologically adapted to it. Unlike uh, us in particular, it causes no discomfort. They don't, their feet, I don't know how they register that it's hot or cold, because when you take the foot out of that cold boot, when it is still cold and press on the coronet, they still have a pain response, but cold is not painful like it is for us, which is a wonderful piece of adaptive evolution for the horse to survive the ice ages as it has in its development over the millions of years. And uh, so it's a survivor of the Ice Age, and it has this wonderful adaptation that we can utilize for therapy and prevention of, of laminitis. So the other lucky event in this story is that the enzymes that are responsible for triggering the damage that laminitis causes are also prevented by very low temperatures of the tissues. So the whole process is uh, arrested.
You've had a series of landmark findings during your time at Queensland. And let's maybe back up and post-Twinkle, as you started moving forward and developing this interest and working with Keith, what was the progression and more of your involvement into the research side? Working with Keith Swan for perhaps uh, 10 years, refining the shoeing technique and uh, finding better ways to make it and to apply it and bringing, you know, the breakover back. It was before there were any uh, gels or supports or silicones or anything like that. So the results by comparison today were probably mixed, but we certainly had some successes, far better than just leaving them to their own devices or euthanizing them. And that horse, Twinkle, did go on to make a full recovery. It went back to being a, a pony club horse, which is where it started. So it was doing, you know, pony club level jumping and cross country and without a sign of lameness. So it lived to a ripe old age. There were many other horses in our area that uh, went on to, to their pain-free ripe old age. So what we were doing, we, we were rehabilitating feet that I guess weren't severely affected by laminitis. The ones that were severely were the ones that had uh, lysis of the distal phalanx. So in using radiographs, this is in the days of film and having to develop your X-ray plates in developer and fixer and waiting 15 minutes till they were dry enough to examine. We started to realise that if that bone had uh, lost a lot of its uh, structure, and uh, particularly around the apex of the bone, if you're looking at a media lateral radiograph, uh, the so-called ski tip, any of those things were harbingers of poor prognosis. So we came to realise that. But we tried nevertheless, because you know, owners would want you to do everything possible. So we learned from our mistakes, and we learned that some horses needed a poor prognosis for humane reasons, how it should have or were, euthanized because of uh, welfare concerns and insufferable pain. So the research was going hand in hand, particularly the arteriovenous shunting research. And then uh, something happened at the University of Queensland. Equine Centre was closed down in the uh, city environment that the veterinary school was in. It became untenable for horses to be treated right in the centre of the city of Brisbane which is where we were based at the time. And the, the equine training was shifted to an eminent equine practice two hours' drive from Brisbane. So after that time point when the equine hospital was closed in St Lucia, the students had to travel for two weeks and stay at this uh, practice in west, uh, west of uh, Brisbane. And Keith Swan went to that practice and continued with the collaboration uh, with their equine shoeing program. So he became their resident practice. And I'll pay a tribute to his practice. It was run at the time by Dr. Reg Pasco, an eminent Australian practitioner, well-known around the world. And uh, the practice was called the Oki Veterinary Hospital. And uh, without their intervention or assistance at that time, the veterinary school might have become deregistered as a training establishment because it actually had no equine hospital. But the transition was seamless. The students did go out and stay at a, a nearby motel and did two weeks of very valuable training in this uh, equine practice uh, at Oki. So I pay tribute to the vision of Dr. Reg Pascoe for enabling that and for the excellence of the training that he imbued into those veterinary students. And Andrew Van Epps will acknowledge that he received, because he was one of the first to be trained at the Oki Hospital, he will acknowledge that uh, he got excellent training as an undergraduate student on that program. So my association with Keith Swan, uh, my friendship never waned, of course, but my working relationship ceased at that point. And I continued with the research. By that point, we had, uh, again, by a serendipitous conference uh, meeting in England, I learned about the existence of fructans in pasture and how from time to time in England, certain seasons, particularly spring and fall, that their pastures would trigger laminitis in horses. And uh, 
key researcher of that work was Annette Longley, working at a pasture institute in the United Kingdom. She started to analyse pasture and found that this particular sugar called fractan was uh, apparently involved. The incidence of uh, outbreaks of acute laminitis were correlating with the peak production and storage of fractan in the pastures at that time. I heard about that at a conference and uh, I learned about fractans from that Plumley for the first time. I asked a colleague about this fractan and said, I said, you know, how can, how can you research it? He said, well, you can actually buy it in 25 kilo bags. And I go, what? <laughs> and it's part of uh, the food manufacturing, insta- uh, food manufacturing industry for people to have this so-called uh, FOS, fructose oligosaccharide, in our diet as a non-digestible fibre. Uh, somehow it gets the, the name fibre, even though it's simply a very long-chain carbohydrate, which I suppose what fibre is in the form of cellulose. When I came back to Australia, of course, I purchased some of this, had dosed horses with it, and uh, sure enough, it did cause laminitis, and that's where the oligofractans or the fractans part of our research kicked in. And it, it enabled us to start working on the timeline of uh, when the actual destruction of the lamella zone occurs. The progression of our understanding in, in your time in the, the industry is, is amazing. Yeah, I've been uh, fortunate. And, and above all, Jeremy, it's been fun. It's been just uh, an exciting journey that uh, I look forward to. I still look forward to working on it every day. But when I was uh, an academic at the university, I enjoyed driving into my uh, office, my laboratory, to uh, work on new horizons with our research and to be with postgrads who are with like minds uh, trying to unravel the, uh, the science of uh, what was going on. We, we pretty early learned that there was a, a massive triggering of enzymes that are, reside in the lamellae. And this was the start of our discovery that matrix metalloproteinases were activated during the laminitis process. And if I take tissue that I've extracted from fresh uh, euthanized horses, so-called cadaver specimens, and expose them to factors that activate those enzymes, the lamellae fall apart. One of the things that people around the world remember about my presentations. And this goes back to 1991 or even earlier. No, no not, not earlier, but in that, in that timeline, I presented a, a major presentation at the AEP in New Orleans. Uh, this is where probably for the first time I showed the video of the lamellae, very resistant to mechanical trauma or separation when they're just in their support medium. But if I activated the enzyme systems, the lamellae fell apart, uh, just peeled apart. And that video is something that people have remembered from around the world for the last uh, 20 odd years from my presentations. If I ever ask people, what do you remember about my early presentations? It's always that little video clip of the lamellae falling apart, because suddenly they could visualise what was happening inside the foot, that these normally tough supporting tissues had been rendered weak and damaged and would allow, you could visualise now the, the, the so-called rotation of the hoof capsule away from the distal femur. So that was a, a landmark um, discovery, and we worked with that for a number of years. And of course, now with our more accurate analysis of the timeline, we realised that that enzyme activation occurs well after the initial insult. So it's now been relegated to an after-effect, pretty much like AV shunting is an after-effect. Now the enzyme activation is an after-effect. I did go on to study with a a post-grad, Claire Underwood, who is now Claire Venep. She's, uh, I'm in the fortunate position, Jeremy, of 
<laughs> supervising to PhD graduation, a husband and wife team, Claire and Andrew Manette. So not many supervisors have had that uh, privilege and honour. Both superb, uh, hardworking, smart postgraduates at the time. So Claire uh, and I, we put enzyme, uh, enzyme inhibitors into the horse's foot circulation. And sure enough, it didn't prevent the actual uh, initiating event of laminitis. So that was a bit disappointing, but uh, from every failed experiment, because, uh, new doors open and new questions are asked. So we, we, we go forward with our laminitis research. What, what do you think is the most important question to answer today regarding laminitis? The effect of weight, the effect of the load. Uh, I now fo focus on this, and it's actually very difficult. So here is where the anatomy and the physiology of the horse works against us with their um, highly adapted limbs and their single digits and highly modified uh, phalanges and metacarpal metatarsal bones. It's very, very hard for them to take the weight off, uh, off their feet, off, the, off that uh, ground reaction force that's uh, pushing the distal phalanx down into the hoof capsule. You, you know that people around the world have developed slings and structures to sort of try to take the weight off horses. Uh, our colleague in uh, Sweden has developed a special pen with a roof that comes down so that the horses uh, are made to lie down with a quick-acting anaesthetic and uh, when they wake up, they discover that they can't stand up because the ceiling has come down to just above their heads and withers. Uh, this work was completed by a colleague in Sweden at the Uppsala Veterinary School. His name is Uwe Wattler. You might translate that name as Ove Wattle, but the Swedish pronunciation is something like Uwe Wattler. He was the postgraduate of a very, very famous laminitis researcher, Nils Obel. And when I said that very little genuine laminitis research had been done until I met uh, James Kaufman, I have omitted to mention the pioneering work of Dr. Obel. Uh, most people know the name from the grading of the locomotory effects of laminitis on horses we, that we know as the Obel laminitis grading system or scoring system. And he is always perplexed that that is the only reason that he was remembered in the, in the literature because he did some very, very interesting work. He was one of the first in 1940 to use a carbohydrate induction model. He used ground rye flour and I think wood cellulose to intubate uh, into the stomach of horses to induce laminitis. So he was pioneering that way, way back in 1940. And he published his PhD thesis, Jeremy, in the year that I was born, 1942. Wow. And in it are wonderful photographs, black and white photographs of exactly the histology that I've shown in my studies from in the, the, the 1990s, exactly the same anatomical derangement, exactly the same anatomical pathology. But his interpretation was totally different. I'm not going to say it was wrong, but it was just uh, slanted in a different direction. He was convinced that the keratinization of the deeper cells in the lamellae were failing to cornify, and it was this failure of cornification his so-called onychogenic uh, substance, onychogenesis, uh, I think, means production of nail, human nails, fingernails. So he thought failure of onychogenic substance or production was the root cause of laminitis, and he concentrated on, on that. And he described what I came to realise later on was basement membrane separation he described that as the fibrillar substance. And I can look at those photographs now. In fact, from time to time, I show them side by side with my own histological pathology. 
uh, in presentations that I make if I've ever invited to dwell on the history of laminitis research. You asked what I was doing after we worked on the AV shunts in, and while I was still working with Keith Swan. And one of the key things was simply looking at the histopathology using a microscope and special stains to look at the tissue damage. So here is another piece of serendipity, Jeremy, that came my way. There was a, an agricultural scientist in Western Australia that was involved in the export of live sheep to the Middle East. And when those sheep come off pasture, into yards in preparation for going on board the ships, the air-conditioned ships that they use, that are used to transport the sheep to the Middle East, they have to learn to eat grain. They can't feed them hay and uh, chaff on board the ships. They have to learn to eat grain. And sheep readily do that. But if you feed them too much, they collapse and die from acidosis. James Rowe, the agricultural scientist that I'm talking about, he discovered one of the antibiotics used in, to add to food to boost production was controlling that acidosis. Feeding Virginia mycin at the same time as the wheat eased the sheep into being able to consume grain comfortably, and off they went to, uh, to the ships for live export. And he understood about laminitis at that stage, and he wondered whether the Virginia mycin might be preventive for the acidosis that occurs when horses that are well known to either die if they excess grain, or if they don't die and survive, gets pretty severe laminitis. And he asked the question, if I fed Virginia mycin beforehand, would they still get laminitis? So he conducted that experiment on six horses with grain overload and, and Virginia mycin, and six horses with uh, just the grain overload alone. So I got a phone call or a letter uh, from James Rowe asking if he sent me pieces of lamella tissue cut out of these horses at the, at the time of their euthanasia, which was 48 hours after they'd been fed the grain or the Virginia mycin together, could I tell him which of those horses had laminitis just from the histology? So, Jeremy, we're 6,000 kilometres apart. He's in Western Australia on the far side of the continent, and I'm on Brisbane, about as far east as you can go on the Australian continent. It'd be like somebody talking... Um, uh, at uh, Boston to somebody in California, pretty much the same distance. So I said yes, and I said yes, not knowing whether I could or not. I'd hardly looked at any histology of laminitis at that stage, but I jumped at the opportunity of having a look. And so in a big box came these fallen fixed tissues, blinded. I had no idea which was which, and I laboriously... Uh, sectioned all of those tissues and labelled them and followed his key and started to look at them. And a pattern did emerge where some looked exactly normal to my eye. I'm not a trained pathologist by any means. And some look uh, grossly abnormal, stretched and uh, distorted. That beautiful pattern of the normal lamella architecture was absent or destroyed in some of the sections. But it was at this point that I went to one of the veterinary school's pathologists. I took him one of these uh, stained histological sections and asked him what, I th what he thought the pathology was. Could he describe the pathology for me? Because I wanted to publish a paper on this. And he started to describe this and that. Lots of white blood cells, lots of inflammation, lots of uh, you know, technical terms. And I said, but... Roger, what is this fibrillar material? What's, what are these strands of strings of tissue out here to one side with the epidermis over there on the left? What's all of this dermal material over here on the right? Uh, and he said, well, it's just uh, fibrillar debris, pretty much like the way Nils Ogle had described it in 1942. 
And I said, well, could it be basement membrane? Could the dermis have separated from the epidermis along the junction between epidermis and dermis, the so-called lamella junction? Could that be basement membrane? He said, well, it could be. And I said, how will I ever find out? He said, well, you just simply stain it with the PAS stain, the periodic acid, periodic acid shift stain. I said, really? Yeah, he said, if that's basement membrane, it'll stain purple or magenta. And so quickly got these sections stained. And this was another breakthrough because it certainly showed that the basement membrane and the dermis separated cleanly from the epidermis. And this was the beginning of our description of basement membrane separation. And I, I will claim that I was the first to really describe it in that, uh, in that way. So I published a paper on the pathology of laminitis in 1996, and that is still my individual most cited paper in the peer-reviewed uh, publication record of my career. So, uh, it's over, over a thousand citations now by other authors citing it. I've got other um, co-author on others that have been cited more, and that's to do with insulin. When you look back over your career, what are you most proud of in terms of the laminitis research? Most proud of uh, launching the careers of postgraduates. So very happy to see them thriving in their own careers now. Uh, they're all over the world, as you know. Some in here in Brisbane, some in other parts of Australia, some in North America, some in Great Britain. Um, I've had colleagues come from Norway, Sweden, Denmark, South Africa, to work in our lab. And perhaps most important of all, we had uh, James Belknap come from Ohio State University. So he was one of the major uh, contributors to laminitis understanding because of his vast knowledge of molecular biology. You know, from as soon as I started to hear about his work or read his work, I uh, was excited by it and I was very anxious to meet him. So there was a fund that the AEP had from secretariats uh, uh, that the AEP committee had set aside for laminitis research. And the first thing they did with that was to call all of the laminitis researchers to the United States, to Kentucky, to uh, speak at a forum. And we all presented uh, our data. And we sat around at uh, tables to answer the question you've just asked, what are the priorities of laminitis research? Dr. Belknap and his team had just presented some data showing that there was no hypoxia and no vas vasoconstriction, no effect of ischemia occurring as laminitis developed. Everybody uh, scratched their heads when he presented that, uh, but I jumped up and down on my seat because I was so excited by that, uh, <laughs> that result. That meant a lot to me, and I'll uh, remind me to tell you why in a, in a minute or so's time. But, uh, that was our first meeting with Dr. Belknap, and Andrew was with me at the time. He was starting his internship at the New Bolton Centre, University of Pennsylvania. It wasn't too much later that uh, we got a question or a request from Dr. Belknap to come over and collaborate with us. So, it was the first time that we had an international collaboration. And that's one of the key things about international research, you know, cancer research and uh, all of the individual types of cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer. They have these multinational collaborative units all with the internet collaborating so intimately. And we've never had that with laminitis. And it was, it's always been a glaring error. We've never had a laminitis research association or conference group that uh, shared results. So, and we would have made much more progress if we'd been sponsored or could have raised sufficient uh, uh, money for that to have happened in a, in a genuine way. But Andrew and I had published on the distal limb cooling. James Belknap admits that he was a skeptic about our claims. He wanted to come over and participate in a distal limb cooling experiment and he would monitor the genes that are upregulated or downregulated as laminitis develops. So he's right onto the, the heartbeat 
of Raman artist development, the essence of it, which is happening within six or seven hours of the whatever process you hit the horse with, whether it's insulin or carbohydrate overload, the so-called sepsis model. The genes that are controlling the proteins and enzymes within that lamella epidermal basal cell or epithelial cell that uh, destroy the connection to the basement membrane are happening very early. And he's got a handle on that. He can tell us which genes are going up, which genes are going down, which cytokines are being upregulated or not. And he was going to show that distal limb cooling wasn't making any difference to those, uh, those changes. And when he got back to his lab in Ohio, we were delighted and he was shocked that the distal limb cooling had stopped the process in its track. So none of the, the enzymes, cytokines, the key indicators of laminitis developing were being upregulated, downregulated, changed with uh, distal limb cooling. So it arrested that process, and, which was an amazing result, uh, a very satisfying result, I must say. I'd like to go back, Jeremy, to an experiment that a colleague and I did, a postgraduate and I did, that sank without trace for a number of years. And it's being brought back now because it turned out to be spot on. We induced horses uh, in a climate-controlled room. The temperature was set at 10 degrees Celsius. We had to wear jackets and beanies to work in that environment. And we had horses inside there. But the reason why we needed that climate control lab was that we wanted to measure the temperature of their feet as they develop laminitis. And you can only measure temperature of horses' feet by as well as long as you have an uh, environment that's below the temperature of a horse's foot. So horses that went on to develop laminitis got very, very hot feet right from the get-go, right from about 10 or 12 hours. And the horses, some of the horses, we thought the experiment had failed because some of the horses did not get laminitis. And uh, those horses, when we analysed the data, didn't vasodilate uh, their feet, kept their feet vasoconstricted. So, you know, we had this perplexing mixed result, feeling that our laminitis induction model, which in those days was wheat flour, we felt that uh, we'd failed. But when we looked at the histology a few weeks later, the histopathology of the herbs, the cooled feet, the horses that kept their own feet cool, were able to keep their feet vasoconstricted, mind you, which is supposed to be the cause of laminitis at that point. Horses that kept their feet with their vessels shut down did not get laminitis. And those that had wide open blood vessels and hot feet did get laminitis. We published then would have been around 2000. Uh, I want to mention the, the postgraduate's name, Craig Davies. And you'll see this publication, Politan Davies, in the literature. We said then that laminitis was associated with an increased circulation to the foot, not a decreased, decrease, and that the ischemic theory of laminitis was probably invalid. And that brings us full circle, Jeremy, to the very latest. Um, molecular biology results from a postgraduate that Andrew and uh, Dr. Belknap and I share, whose name is Simon Coates. He, in their latest work, have shown that vasodilation is occurring. Now we're using microdialysis and uh, what we inject into the perfusate to show that blood circulation is increased during or not decreased, certainly working fully operational as laminitis develops in both the insulin model and the oligofructose septic shock induction model. So, you know, that old theory that uh, James Kaufman was uh, alluding to way, way back in the 1990s, the laminitis has been shown to have another etiology. So the understanding is constantly evolving. You know, to change gears now, some of the other instrumental work you've been involved with is our understanding of the Australian Brumby, uh, the, the feral horse of Australia. And where, where do the Brumbies come from? What, what stock? Australia, like in North America, 
our pioneering days was all on horseback. And horses, of course, were used to clear the land, plough the fields, and uh, the cattle that were introduced into the grasslands, the prairie, our prairie lands, our savannah lands of the inland all had to be looked after from stockmen on horses. So the, we needed horses for that. And the, the horse that uh, was most sought after was a type of thoroughbred. When Australia was first settled by large numbers of Europeans in 1788, Three thoroughbreds were in that first fleet, a stallion and two mares. And very soon after that, when more ships came with more people, there was a huge demand for more horses. So thoroughbreds were brought in in particular. And that became the, uh, the basis for working the cattle. When the inland was opened up, large numbers of cattle, mainly shorthorn cattle, were introduced and they thrived. And it wasn't long before the huge demand for food in the settled areas was being met by cattle. Uh, and then the, the export trade of frozen goods happened in the, in the late uh, 19th century. So large numbers of cattle went with large numbers of horses. And in the early days, of course, some of these horses escaped. One of the key owners of horses in the colony around Sydney was a man called John Brumby. And these uh, free horses that he had allowed to escape from his property were called Brumby's horses that were running around uh, being a nuisance. He got transferred, he was an officer of the army, transferred to an offshore island, Norfolk Island, I think it was. And so he sort of a abandoned his horses and they became known as Brumby's horses and maybe that's where the word came from, they then became Brumby's. So there are pockets of feral horses all over Australia. There's uh, at least a dozen areas where in remote areas they've been allowed to thrive on their own. I gave a presentation to a group of postgraduates in uh, the early part of uh, this century, to th around 2000, to a group of postgraduates studying animal physical therapy. So they were all had a degree and they all had to do a postgraduate thesis. And out of the class came Brian Hampson, who wanted his thesis on horses' feet, because I'd given a lecture on laminitis and particular disease, the problems with horses' feet as part of their physical therapy course. And uh, after he'd done a master's uh, thesis, uh, a little while later, he wanted to do a PhD. And he was able to secure a scholarship from the federal government to do this for three years. We sat down and decided that we needed to look at um, feral horses from different environments, see whether the so-called paradigm of the natural horse's foot held true despite what environment the horses were located in. And, of course, we found terrible feet in lush country, particularly the Kaimanawa horses of uh, central North Island of New Zealand, where they were basically grazing on sheep country. They had founded feet. They had cracks and splits and the worst feet of the whole collection. But we worked out uh, that we needed to study horses in central Queensland, in the Gulf country, and then in central Australia, right near Alice Springs, right in the red heart of Australia. And um, some of the horses' feet looked terrific on the outside, particularly those central Australian feet. A photograph of the foot from the outside would fit exactly the, you know, the ideal, ideal Mustang that uh, some of our American colleagues have uh, espoused as the perfect natural foot. But when we went to the extra trouble of uh, collecting these feet when they made it to the abattoir. A lot of these horses were being culled at the time. We collected the feet and did the histopathology. We found that the good-looking feet weren't necessarily normal on the inside. They all had signs of what I, I, I recognised as uh, 
not severe, but mild chronic laminitis. The bone inside was perfectly okay. And these horses were sound in their environment. They were able to live their lives, natural lives, without compromise, even though they, they had, there were signs of lamella damage. So we dispelled the, the, the myth of perfect natural horse's foot. After that, uh, both Brian and I developed a consuming interest for the so-called desert brumbies, the ones in the, the red centre. And we've been going back year after year to look at those horses. I've made videos, uh, a video documentary of their behaviour. Um, and we've, we conduct uh, guest visits to the area and we show people the brumbies. I've attached satellite tracking collars to several so that we can follow the bands. We know where they are. Brian has captured some and broken them in and led people out into the beautiful desert country, see the old uh, deserted homesteads uh, in collaboration with our, the traditional owners. We've uh, been able to show them what a wonderful country it, it still is. More recently, you've been very interested in the suspensory apparatus of the distal limb. Can you talk about that work and how it kind of comes full circle with what you've been working on most of your career? In collaboration with a now deceased colleague called Simon Collins, who first got me enthused with his enthusiasm about the suspensory apparatus, which was originally worked up by a German group and published in German. So we took the German research and worked on it ourselves and came to realize just how elegant the, and refined the suspensory apparatus is, how deeply penetrating the collagen bundles on the surface of the coffin bone, how deeply they penetrate into the bone to form an anchor, and how those collagen bundles cross the sublamellar dermis, like the ropes uh, attaching an ocean liner to the wharf, up to the lamellar zone and penetrate there and uh, arborize or the, the big collagen bundles get finer and finer until they're just almost individual collagen molecules attaching to the basement membrane on the dermal side. And then with the help of hemidesmosomes um, connecting to the hoof cells, the epidermal basal cells, and how those key epidermal basal cells are connected to each other and to the deeper epidermal parabasal cells. So laminitis now uh, is part of this hierarchy of connective tissues. The heart of the matter, Jeremy, is that living epidermal basal cell. Some still call it the insensitive cell of the insensitive lamellae. But I make the point, as you've heard, that this is the, the key cell that's living to maintain the suspension of the bone. And laminitis now appears to be a message getting to those cells to change the structure of their cytoskeleton, to change the attachments between themselves and within themselves so that they let go of their connections to themselves, to their adjacent neighbouring epidermal hoof cells and to their basement membrane. So there's no ischemia, no uh, involvement of the dermis. As far as we can tell, it's this failure of the cytoskeleton and the attachment between cells that is at the heart of laminitis. And that came from a study of the attachment apparatus, which goes back to the early German studies. We acknowledge their early pioneering work. It isn't finished yet by any means. You know, we need drugs to, to turn that... Uh, cytoskeletal message and that attachment message around because those processes occur in cancer and when cells become are mutated and become uh, malignant when they strive to become metastatic burst out of their environment when a cell becomes cancerous they're using the same processes separate jumping off their basement membrane separating from each other and spreading throughout the body, as we know from malignant cancer. So there are many drugs on the horizon that are beginning to arrest that process successfully. And I see in the future that uh, that's where uh, a breakthrough will occur in cryotherapy, distal limb cooling, 
is very clunky and difficult to administer. It's certainly given us uh, a new tool and a very effective tool, but it's part of the process, understanding those um, key killer events occurring in that uh, epidermal basal cell. Do you see anything on the horizon that will change how barriers are implemented in, in treating either uh, uh, acute outbreaks or chronic laminitis? Well, they'll be the messengers, won't they? Yeah, but if they're switched on and off to attend conferences where these announcements are made, the veterinarians will certainly get the announcements at their conferences and conferences that bring both professions together. That's where we'll, where uh, these announcements, these developments will be discussed and uh, shown. That's the future, Jeremy. It certainly will happen. I can predict that, that we will be able to. Here's another very interesting point. You've got to understand the anatomy first. Um, that's why I like to, in my own presentations, start with the anatomy. And uh, I've been making some uh, models of the horse's foot, the distal phalanx, the bones, and the hoof capsules. I've got models that you can uh, hold in your hands, polyurethane cast models uh, of these structures, of horses' feet with laminitis, so you can see the damage for yourself and describe it to your clients. And I've also just succeeded in making a, a model that I'm very excited about, and that's a model that contains all of the ligaments of the joints and the ligaments of the uh, navicular bone that hold the uh, navicular bone to the phalanges. And I've also got a model with the tendons intact as well. So these, Jeremy, you will be able to, they're in plain white or off-white polyurethane. You'll be able to take your text pens or your paintbrush and learn the anatomy by painting in different colours all of these key structures that hold the foot together. Just would like to take the opportunity to thank you for how much you've done in advancing our understanding of laminitis and, and your willingness to be an educator, not just for your postgrads and, and those who've studied under you, but for all of us who, who've attended your sessions and, and read your materials. So, so thank you very much. Well, as I said earlier, it's always been uh, given me a great deal of pleasure to do research. And it also gives me pleasure to be able to discuss it with like-minded colleagues. So thank you for being such a willing audience. I'd like to thank Dr. Christopher Pollitt for joining me on this episode. I'd also like to thank Pinwoods Equine for sponsoring it. You can learn more about their products at pinwoods.com. Make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast through your preferred player. So we'll be coming out with some more episodes throughout the spring. Until then, thank you for listening.